Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Darren Geyer. I'm the director of spiritual formation programs. And uh, I'm just so happy to be able to be here this morning with you, and I'm so glad you've chosen to be here in this place today uh, as we really, we launch our chapel programming for the year. Um, our theme this year is with, God with us, together with each other. We're going to talk this year about pursuit, God's pursuit of us, our pursuit of God, our pursuit of intimacy with God, our life with Jesus, our life with each other. Because Jesus, Emmanuel, is God with us. He made us alive with him. We've been raised with Christ to new life. He invites us to abide with him and to produce fruit. His spirit's power and his presence is with us, empowering us to partner with him in his kingdom work. We're meant to do this together with each other, aren't we? Today, we'll be exploring the truth that God is with us. And it sounds maybe like an elementary thing to say, God with us, but I think there is, uh, it's such an easy thing to take this for granted. Wouldn't you agree? And I think sometimes we believers even, we live as though God isn't with us. We live as though God is distant. And so I want to ask an important question today. What if it wasn't true that God is with us? Imagine a world without God's presence for a second. God created beauty. He created life. Maybe he left a set of instructions. But then God steps back out of the human experience and he watched, like a watchmaker who creates and designs and then sets things in motion and gives it away from that point on, far away from, uh, from his creation, uninvolved in its existence, uninvolved in its purpose. This maybe sounds sort of silly to us because we know that God is present. I think this worldview, though, is, is really, it's an ancient understanding of God, and it's common to the human experience, unfortunately. Um, deism is a system of beliefs that existed since uh, really the Enlightenment, the age of reason back in the 16 and 1700s. And that says that deism says that a creator created and brought life into being and now chooses to live detached from its creation. Characteristics of deism include belief that religious knowledge is acquired through the use of reason and all the laws of the universe are discoverable. And that might sound like, well, that's 300 years ago. Well, it continues today, it really does. There's a thing called moralistic, therapeutic deism that maybe is more common to our experience in this age. The researcher Christian Smith and his team uh, at the National Study of Youth and Religion, they, they describe moralistic, therapeutic deism this way. They say, one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. That actually sounds nice. God wants, it's two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and as taught by most world religions. That, that sounds pretty good. The goal, number three, the goal of life um, is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. I can get with that. Sounds all right. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved with one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. I'm going to admit that sounds sort of convenient, doesn't it? Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. That seems fair. That seems fair to me. 
So does this worldview sound familiar to you? That God is distant, that God is not present, and this worldview is, is common. And it begs the question, if God is distant, what do we do with him? What do we do with a distant God? Well, there's a few things we would try to do with a distant God. One, we would try to comprehend. You try to figure out this deity that, that is really far away, altogether separate from our own experience. You make, so what ends up happening is we make God in our own image. We project our insecurities, we project our fears and our desires, our hopes and dreams, our expected outcomes, our sense of justice, our clouded understanding of morality. Basically, we make God out to be an idealized version of ourselves or Tim Tebow or, or the manager at your local Chick-fil-A. That's not God, though. We try to comprehend, but what happens is misunderstanding. The second thing we try to do with a God who's distant is we, try to, we would try to appease God. God is not close, he's not imminent, and, and we really don't understand him. Yet we know he's powerful, we know he's in charge, and so we instinctively, instinctively we know we must please him. But our efforts, they're motivated by the wrong thing. Our efforts are, in that situation are motivated by fear. We try to appease, but what happens is insecurity. The third thing we try to do with a distant God is we try to manipulate. God's not present, so you are at the center of your own existence. You've been given no vision of what it's like to really love. And so your natural assumption is that God is here to serve my own self-interest. And so you try to manipulate, and the result is selfishness. The fourth thing that we would try to do with a distant God, if he were distant, we would try to earn. Any effort to be good is motivated by our need to make our own way to God, to live up to his standards. So we follow, see in the, we follow in the legacy of, of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, or the, the, the Tower of Babel builders before them, and we try to earn our way to God. We try to make our own way to him. But that produces pride. Fifth thing, if God were distant, what would we do with him? Well, we would dismiss him. We'd forget him. And you can understand why, right? I mean, if God seems far away, he can easily become irrelevant to my life, and we move on without him. But we were never, never meant to live this way. We were created for intimacy with the creator. When I was a little boy, um, I, had three older, I have three older brothers, and when I was little, um, one day my brother Dean, who's about 10 years older than I, um, was babysitting me. And I felt, uh, oh, this is going to be good. Dean and I can hang out. But then uh, we were watching TV, and, and Dean falls asleep on the couch. And I know my brother Dean, and, and he, uh, he's a hard sleeper. <laughs> and that was actually really thrilling to me, because suddenly I felt this sense of freedom come over me, like, all right, I have no supervision right now, right? Dean is asleep. And so what do I do? Um, well, we never had snacks really a lot at home, but we did have chocolate chips in my mom's baking cabinet. Uh, she baked a lot, and so I went and found the chocolate chips, and I helped myself. And I also, I went down to the basement where my dad kept his tools, and I started checking out the tools that he wouldn't let me play with, or he wouldn't let me use. I just wanted to see what those were like. 
So I went and played with dad's tools. I also went and played with my other brother's toys. My brother Dan, who's two years older than me, we had a lot of similar interests, but, but he didn't share a lot of his stuff with me. And so I went and played with Dan's stuff while brother Dean was sleeping. But then I heard this, uh, this unusual noise, and I don't know if it came from outside or inside, and it sounded sort of like, mm, mm, mm. and I started to freak out a little bit. And I'm like, what is that noise? And I heard it, mm, mm. and I got freaked out. And I, and, I, and, I, and I was afraid, though, to wake up Dean because he got a little grumpy when he woke up, and I knew this about him, too. And in my fear, I was hesitant to wake him up. Maybe he'd be mad at me. Maybe I should just toughen up and, and deal with this myself. You guys, I think this is how we live our life with God sometimes. We, we, we keep God at a distance. And when, it gets af- when, when we get afraid, even then, we don't call on him. Because if we don't grasp his love for us, if we haven't experienced his presence with us, if we don't understand the measures he's taken to be with us, we'll live in fear. Sure, it can feel like freedom at first, for a while. It can feel like chocolate chips. But like the prodigal son, that freedom gives way to fear and vulnerability and emptiness and loneliness. I wonder why is this worldview so common, this this worldview that dismisses the presence of God? Why is this so appealing? And I can think of at least two reasons, maybe. One would be what I would call disordered reverence, right? God is so other, he's so inaccessible that he can't be bothered by trivial human matters. Or two, maybe, uh, maybe we're stuck on that reason piece, especially since the Enlightenment. You know, divine presence is it's supernatural and therefore illegitimate. But here's the good news, and I know you know it, God is with us. God is all about withness. His being with us is an outpouring of him being with himself after all, right? Because before he created, God was with himself in the Trinity. If we go back to John 1, we see it. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. That triune Withness. And out of this self contained, perfect community with Himself, God created. He created us. He created us to be with Him. And we see this, this pursuit of withness on God's part all throughout Scripture, don't we? We see it in Eden. In the creation narrative, we see a picture of God's intentions for humanity that, that human beings would enjoy this, this fullness. Uh, of fellowship and of God's presence. After the fall, God still pursued us. He wanted to be with humanity in various forms and iterations over the ages. We see it. God has always pursued us. Throughout the Old Testament, we see it vividly. Uh, Just a couple of examples. God spoke to Noah. God spoke to Abraham and, and, and the other patriarchs. God's presence was with Moses and the pillar of fire and smoke as he led his people to freedom. And then later, as as God spoke directly with Moses on Mount Sinai, the psalmists, right, they speak of God's presence with us. 
Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my my bed in the depths, you're there. And then notably, with the incarnation, God's withness is, is heightened to new significance. Again, John 1, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And then later on, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We see it later in John in chapter 14. Jesus is is hanging out with his disciples before he's arrested and and he says all these important things to them, including, I'm always going to be with you guys. Right? He promises the Holy Spirit. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, obey my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He's the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. And God's withness with us, it's going to keep on growing in significance as we think about, as we imagine the the final coming of Christ, the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to bring back this complete withness. We see a picture of it in Revelation, don't we? Chapter 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 